Up next, Rob Smith is problematic, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Do we ever have any real conversations about race in America problematics, or is everybody just speaking past each other or talking at each other? I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine, Buck Sexton, and a a black liberal Democrat named Mark Lamont Hill on an episode of a podcast that they do together. It's called What Do You Really Think? That's over on Quake Media. And I wanted to share this with you guys because I thought that it was worthy. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And I thought that you very rarely see and hear this perspective from people. You got a black conservative, me, black liberal, Mark Lamont Hill, white conservative, Buck Sexton. And we have a very interesting conversation about some pretty thorny topics. And and I'll tell you, uh, sometimes the conversations got contentious. uh, Sometimes they went in some directions that were very unexpected. But I think that towards the end of this conversation, both me, Buck, and Mark had a very real understanding of where every single person is coming from. So I want you guys to just dig into this conversation. It is great. (laughs) You're probably not going to love Mark Lamont Hill, but I think that you will probably understand what really goes on in the mind of a black leftist Democrat uh, like Mark Lamont Hill. So with no further ado, I want you to hear this conversation that I had with Buck Sexton and Mark Lamont Hill on their Quake Media podcast called What Do You Really Think? Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of What Do You Really Think? I'm Buck Saxon. And with me this week, not my esteemed co-host, Mark Lamont Hill, but the one and only Rob Smith, who is pinch hitting right now. There is a chance we may have a special guest or rather a special host coming back during this. We'll see. But for now, we have Rob in the mix here. And Rob, a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Buck. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, and to all of your listeners, I'm the host of my own podcast called Rob Smith is Problematic. You can find that one on iHeart, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. So just uh, throw that plug in. Yeah, I like it. And man, I, I always respect the people who who understand that this game, you always got to be always got to be telling people about the projects you're working on. This is also why now I always tell everybody, don't send me your book. I'll buy your book. I, I actually want when when people want to come on. I'm like, I, I'll go on Amazon. I've actually sent people the digital receipt for their book before they've come in the, before they come on the interview, because I'm like, let, let me buy your book. If I'm going to have you on, I'm going to I'm going to be, you know, speaking about it. Let me at least be a contributor. So I, I, I respect that you view this as, as a as a business, as I do, too. Um, so I was going to pose this between you and and Mark. But since we're uh, it's just you and me. And for those who. I, I I don't want to tell the audience what your politics are because I think they'll they'll figure it out here pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> it's will. not not Mark's politics, everybody. I can tell you that <laughs> they are very much not. So Mark's so my my thing is is that uh, as we go into the show today, Michelle Obama sat down for an interview in which <sighs> she expressed concern about how her daughters will face racism. I mean, she didn't phrase it this way, but this is what she was saying: her daughters will fra- uh, face racism. And she was worried that they might be in a position where they'll face racism when they try to get their first apartment or something. Now, I I don't sit here and and, uh, this is where I I don't deny that racism is real. I don't deny there are racists, of course. No, but no one does. It's not a position that anyone holds. The notion that Michelle Obama's children are anything other than 
almost godlike in the way they are treated in this country. They are worth through their family. Hundred, you know, really what will end up being hundreds of the Obamas are going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars if they're not already. I mean, that, that's right. the kind of money with the Netflix deals, the books. I mean, tens of millions already. They have a Secret Service deal yeah, detail for heaven's sake. They're the children of the first. Oh, look at this. And we we spiced it all up here. OK, so we got oh, Mark. First of all, Mark, why don't you say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. So, so Mark, you can you can catch this as we're rolling here. This is perfect because I was just saying to Rob, Michelle Obama worried about her daughters facing racism when they get their first apartment. I'm pointing out to Rob that that's I'm not worried about the Obama daughters. Uh, they've got a 15 million dollar mansion in Martha's Vineyard and a Secret Service detail with them at all times. They're going to be just fine. Rob, what do you make of this? OK, so it's very curious to me that the conversation about race and racism is in America is always framed through the lens of the most wealthy, privileged, and influential African-American people in this country. So we have a conversation about race in America, which is a very real conversation, mind you, but this is filtered through the lens of Michelle Obama and her daughters who have been privately educated their entire lives, who are in a family that is worth, like you said, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so the idea is that black people are so oppressed in this country that even the daughters of one of the most popular presidents and popular first ladies in American history are going to face discrimination uh, when they go to get an apartment or something like that. So in my mind, to me, uh, that is ridiculous. That That's not a very real thing. And that is not to say that these issues that she's speaking of, and I know that you can make the argument that Michelle Obama is speaking to the issues that um, a regular black middle class mother would have. But Michelle Obama is not a regular black middle class mother. And so for me, I am sick and tired. And it just I'm tired of the conversation always being framed by the most wealthy, influential, privileged and powerful people in the world, one of which is Michelle Obama, two more of which are Malia and Sasha Obama. Yeah. I, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, you'd be shocked to know. Um, well, first, I, I don't think the conversations are always framed that way. The conversation about race in America and racism in America uh, for the last seven years has largely been framed around state violence, right? It's been about Mike Brown. It's been about Breonna Taylor. It's been about Sandra Bland. It's been about, you know, Tamir Rice, et cetera, and about, and about uh, uh, George Floyd. And those are everyday Black people, all of whom were not of means, none of whom were of means, all of whom were working class, working poor, et cetera. And so I, I think it's just inaccurate to say that, that we've been framing our public discourse around race and racism around that. Um, historically, when we've talked about it, we've often talked about it in the context of the kind of stereotypical who can catch a New York cab, right? Uh, we've talked about it in terms of Rodney King. We've talked about it in terms of job discrimination. I think there's lots of conversations to be had. Now, in addition to that, I think you're right to say that we also it, bring into that conversation um, the experiences of, of, of rich black people. But I think that's actually a powerful tool because the problem is when poor black people talk about catching hell, we say, well, if only you behave differently, if you didn't speak like that, if you pulled your pants up, if you dressed differently, if you spoke. the Who queen says that? Uh, lots of people from uh, right wing ideologues to people like Bill Cosby. Right. I mean, think about okay. when, think, think about when um, Bill Cosby gives his NAACP speech about pound cake. 
right? And he's like, well, you get shot in the ass stealing pound cake. If you weren't stealing pound cake, it wouldn't happen. He says, you give your kids names like Taniqua, Taliqua, Muhammad. This is, and, and, you know, and, and, and you, this is the consequence of your choice. So cultural attacks, uh, attacks about individual choice, the attacks on welfare mothers, the, the, all the conversations about welfare to work, about individual responsibility being the kind of thing that can trump structural problems. I'm saying all of this is on the table. So on top of that, just let me just let me finish this quick point. On top of that, when you have uh, Henry Louis Gates getting a, getting stopped by police on his way into his Martha's Vineyard house, yeah, I don't feel particularly. I'm not like, oh my god, he can't, I can't even go to the vineyard without getting harassed. That, well, that's you mean not Ca- right. yeah, that was Cambridge and it was the beer summit you're talking about, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, he's on the vineyard. Often you're right. It was his Cambridge home. You're exactly right. Or whether it's um, a, a Oprah getting, you know, having a problem in France going into a store. Those aren't the, the heart and soul of the of the struggle. But I think it does go to show that no matter how rich you get. You can't experience these problems. I think that says something. It says something. So, so for me, the question that I have is, I, 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 the question that I always have is why? So why is Michelle Obama resurfacing at this moment to talk about race and racism in terms of her, of her daughters, the, two of the most wealthy and, and privileged people, uh, black girls that will probably ever exist in, in, in history, right? And so the question is why? And so the question that I always have when it comes to the way that race and discrimination and racism are spoken of on the left is why are these conversations being had right now? What am... What is this being used to distract me from? So this is the question that I have as somebody that is curious. So to me, this conversation right now, when you figure out that the left has gotten everything that they wanted, now they hold the presidency, the House and the Senate. They have gotten the the evil orange man out of the White House. Um, and now we are seeing the effects of what is happening on the economy. We are seeing black people hurting economy wise. We are seeing uh, a jobs report being uh, reported as as almost I, I believe seven hundred and fifty thousand beneath expectations. So this is really bad. When we see crises that that are happening at the border with illegal immigration, which by the way hurts African Americans. So the question is, why am I being distracted with race when there are so many other issues that are going on right now? And so that is the question that pops in my head when I see Michelle. When I see, well, first of all, let me finish the point. When I see Michelle Obama, a very wealthy and privileged black woman, talking with Gail King, another very wealthy and privileged black woman, about racism, what are they trying to distract me from? And that's the question that I have. Right. And I'm saying you mentioned that there are other issues on the table that, you know, you're being distracted from or other things important going on while this conversation is happening. What are those things that should merit our attention rather than this? Well, like I said, right now, I talked about the jobs report. Um, the economy affects us all, you know, and, you know, and I think that it is very real to say that when, you know, when white America catches a cold, black America gets pneumonia. Um, these jobs numbers are not good. Um, the economy is hurting right now. We are heading into inflation. There's a lot of stuff going on. And when we talk about what's going on at the border, there is a crisis right now at the border. And I think that there are not enough African-Americans that are on the left that can speak the language in 2021 of the, the great Barbara Jordan who spoke to the issues uh, with illegal immigration and how that affects African-Americans. So we're not really talking about meat and potatoes issues right now. Black America... And the conversation that is being had is so explicitly focused on race, racism in the way to where we're talking about uh, Malia and Sasha Obama not being able to get an apartment. What? How does that affect the average African-American and how does that affect 
what is going into their pocketbooks right now, what's going on in their actual yeah. real lives. So, so here's where I disagree. So the, the, the conversation that Michelle Obama is attempting to spark is not a conversation about why Malia and Sasha can't get apartments or, or what will happen when they try. It's, it's, They're it's, clearly going to get apartments, by the way. They're going to go from Harvard to Yale Law School to mansions to whatever apartment they want for the rest of their lives. But OK, go after ahead. that, after that Malia Obama internship with Harvey Weinstein, by the way, which I, I guess we're not allowed to talk about. The, 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 the conversation, I think, is going to be or it, it, what they're trying to direct us to say, look, this happening over here is an index of how of how it is for everyday black people. Michelle mm-hmm. Obama was not saying ignore the experience of everyday black people and focus on my two privileged kids. It's saying this shit is so bad for everyday people or for black people writ large that even me in a state of privilege have a concern about. But that. is that an unre? But I guess Mark, what that brings up is is that an unreasonable concern and almost a cynical concern that Michelle Obama, who is you know, everyone believed that she had run for president, for example, like she would have run away with it. Right. I mean, this is somebody who is like universally beloved on the left and by a lot of centrists and a lot, a lot, just a lot of people in America love Michelle Obama, super I wealthy. Love, I'm she's, on the right. I love Michelle Obama. I think that she is the more I believe personally as somebody that is is on the right. I think that Michelle Obama is a more true American success story than Barack Obama. A hundred and ten percent. So 110 percent. But, but, but do you see what I mean, though, Mark? I just I, I, don't, I want to let you respond. But I'm just saying that there's this perception that, you know, someone like LeBron James, you know, comes out and says, uh, you know, black people are being hunted every time they leave their homes. Um, Don Lemon said that, you know, when he returns home, sometimes he calls his mom crying because he's afraid the police are going to murder him on his way. I mean, Don oh, Lemon God. lives in a three Don million Lemon dollar apartment on the Upper West Side. Like, so Don, no one's murdering Don Lemon on his way home for no reason because because of anything, skin color, or anything else. Um, I mean, that's just not a realistic fear. Right. So is it is it unhelpful? I and mean, I see what you're saying, Mark, which is that it's trying to get a broader conversation started. But it's like Michelle Obama's not. I mean, to, to what to what uh, Rob said earlier, Michelle Obama's not not your average uh, lady of any kind, right? I mean, Michelle Obama's Michelle Obama. So, so there's two different issues here, right? Because what you're saying is a question of, of whether it's tactically wise. That's different than what Rob is saying, which is that this is actually a distraction away from the. Well, yeah, but yeah, I'm uh, handling both. Handling both. Go for right. it. And, and so what I'm saying is. It's not a distraction from everyday people because she's saying her, 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 her whole point of bringing it up is to point to the experiences of everyday people. So I'm saying no. Now, if you're saying, well, this isn't a reasonable concern and it becomes so absurd a, pro- a possibility that it, it makes people dismissive of the idea in and of itself. Right. Or it's just bad faith arguing. Then we can have a different conversation. Now, here's mm-hmm. where I, I would disagree with that. That I, I'm willing to take that on, but I would still disagree. And I'll tell you why. Um, empirically, when you look at the data. If you black people who graduate from Harvard, Yale and Princeton still make less than their white counterparts. Right. Um, When you control for class in independent schools, private schools, what they used to call private schools, now we call independent schools. um, Black children still get uh, have different outcomes. They get suspended more. They get expelled more. They have different grades, et cetera. My point is, is that even in places of of relative privilege or extraordinary privilege, um, black folks still have different outcomes. So it's not unreasonable to point to, um, for people who are privileged to point to their fears, their anxieties around race. Now, do I, I mean, the odds of anybody getting shot by, if you live in the, in the projects, I, if you live in the projects, are the odds of you getting shot by police are relatively low, right? They're, they're, they're incredibly low. Actually. Right. The, the, the odds of police interaction are high, 
And so if I know that people get that me being black makes me more likely to get killed by police and I'm constantly around police, I don't think it's unreasonable to be afraid of that. I, take Don Lemon off the table for a minute. Take Don Lemon off the table for a minute. OK, yeah. that's a big ass, though, to remove Don Lemon from the situation. But keep going. But if I'm consuming a steady diet of media that shows black people being killed all the time. Right. If, if, if the dominant narrative is that we're being hunted. Yeah. If, if we're disproportionately being hunted, being killed and, and certainly being arrested and being charged, then I don't I don't want to dismiss people's fears and anxieties. But, but isn't isn't that but narrative gonna... unfair? And Rob, I'll, I'll pass to you because you're yeah. our guest this week. But I, it feels like that narrative is the problem, right? Like, Mark, you're saying they're reacting to a narrative and I'm sitting here saying, OK, but the narrative is unreasonable and people shouldn't be playing into this. And so when LeBron James going back to look, when we're talking about LeBron and, and Michelle Obama and, and some of the other names we've brought up here, these are among the richest, most influential, most powerful people on planet Earth of seven billion of us. Like these are at the very, very top. And so, yeah, there, there's the response. There's the tactics issue, Mark, that I bring up. There's also the issue that that Rob has brought up about distraction from other things. Um, but, Rob, I'll, I'll pass to you, though. I, I just feel like the narrative also is. Because, yeah, it is. And, and what I have to say, and I have to throw this on you a little bit, Mark, because, it, look, you guys set the narrative, okay? I, as a black conservative, as a black right-leaning person, I do not set any sort of mainstream narratives about what the conversation is among African-Americans. I can talk to black conservative-leaning people, and I can talk to conservative-leaning people of all colors, and I can talk to independent people, and I can set that conversation. But the narrative about what the black American experience is in America is being set by you and is being set by Michelle Obama and is being set by Oprah Winfrey and is being set by Meghan Markle and is being set by all of these people. So my question is, why is the narrative about what the black American experience is in America that is being set by the people that are the most powerful people in entertainment and media always a narrative of us being victims of racism? Always us being victims, always being us victims of police violence, always being victims of, of everything else. Why is the narrative never the fact that, and, and I did this, I, I've got a, I've got a substack and I've been doing a little research and doing a little blogging. The narrative is never about how there are more black, there are more black, um, American millionaires than there are of, of black people in any other country. We are the wealthiest black people on earth. Um, black people in America. Um, so that narrative is never there. And when you have somebody like LeBron James who uses that platform, um, and this person is worth well upwards of a hundred million dollars and has private security. Oh, I, think, I think LeBron's and a billionaire. When, I think that's fair to say or close to it now, but or close to it. And so he has that platform. And so the platform is always used by the people who set the narrative to tell the black people that watch them who, that will be exponential the amount of black people that look at me or, or any other black conservatives or whatever, that you are constantly being victimized by America, that you are a victim of racism in America, that America is a racist country, that you are constantly a victim. At what point do we start saying as black Americans, that it's time for us to pick up the football and run with it. So what does Mark have to say to that? Dig back into this conversation right after the break. I reject the premise on which the question rests, right? Which is why, why are the people who set these narratives setting this particular narrative? I would say first, I don't think there's a singular narrative about black people. And I don't think that the, the left or, or, or black or, or black elites are setting the narrative entirely. If you walk around, if you go to the, I think act, you're too inside. Of, I think that you're too inside of it to really realize it. Um, I, I, I think you're wrong. I, I, I get that you do right. And I could I could argue similarly that you're too outside of it to see what people are talking about on the ground. 
right? So I think somewhere in the middle between those two extremes is, is a conversation that's worth having. And, and I think that there is certainly a narrative that black people are victims of racism in this country. I'm not, I'm not disputing your claim there. I'm, saying it's, I'm just saying it's not the only conversation that's happening. I'm saying that in addition to that conversation, there's a conversation about black on black crime. If you go to any neighborhood in the world, uh, you, and, and I'm not just talking about from the right, I'm saying there's a conversation about black people killing black people all the time, right? That's yes. part of the narrative. That's, that, that is a narrative of black pathology. What, and, and, and whether you agree with it, that it's true or not is, is a separate conversation we can have. But people aren't just walking around saying black people are victims. People are also saying black people are actively in the world doing harm. Um, there's also narratives among black elites around black excellence. If you look, if you look at all black, most black media over the last five or certainly even really 10 years, whether it's BET, whether it's now Black News Channel, whether it's Revolt, whether it's uh, VH1, it's all about, or whether it's Real Housewives, there's this whole kind of dominant popular cultural lens of focusing, of saying, look, we don't want to talk about black suffering, right? And I actually am critical of this because I think we need more conversation about black suffering. It, let's talk, let's focus on the black billionaires. Let's focus on the black excellence. Let's focus on the black achievers, the black content creators, the black geniuses, the black boy joy, all the stuff we see on social media is to say, look, we don't just want to talk about misery. So I don't think there's a single conversation happening uh, in, in popular culture or in political discourse around black people being victims. And as far as who sets the table, I don't think it's as simple saying the left is out here setting the table around black folk. Oh, come and, on, Mark. And, and, and who certainly doesn't set the table around black folk is black people. Even to the extent that the left is setting the table about black folk, it's white liberals. It's not black people. And so part of what we also have to have a conversation about, I think, is how black people can, can have more um, agency and more control over how we narrate our own lives and experiences. Because when you talk to the average black person, they're, they're not telling the story of catching hell all the time. They're not telling the story about black misery all the time. They're talking about misery. They're talking about pain. They're talking about joy. They're talking about success. They're talking about resilience. They're talking well, about that's pain. like the they're talking about the human condition is what the you're human, talking about. The human experience. Yeah. Right. But the idea that black people are human is still relatively new in a white supremacist world. And that's on the left and the right. And I have to disagree with the the fact that you're saying that, you know, Real Housewives of Atlanta is not about black suffering. I am a faithful viewer of the Real Housewives of Atlanta and Portia's entire storyline this past season was Black Lives Matter and marching for Brianna Taylor. Yeah, but the, the whole show was the about wokeness, the wokeness that came from my Atlanta housewives, and I, I, I got a I got a problem with that. Come on, man. The whole show is about black rich black people in Atlanta. I mean, there's no more rich a black place than Atlanta. Atlanta you spending time in Atlanta, it's not you it, it's nothing but rich black people. I, I have that a friend, I have a friend, longtime friend who works for Bravo, and that show, at least as of a couple a few years ago. Is not the number one show on Bravo when it, it's the number one show on Bravo all year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a it's a top housewives franchise. It's the number one on Bravo. Like I, I love it. And, and I guess that the point that I'm trying to make is that okay. So here's the thing. So so Mark, you said I'm an outsider. I'm not. And this is the thing. Okay. So people on the left, they don't have to engage in conservative media or engage in conservative people because you can opt out of doing that for me as somebody that is a black conservative when i want to be entertained i am generally watching things that are coming from a liberal standpoint so i'm watching housewives i'm watching movies i'm watching the grammys i'm watching entertainment i'm watching etc so i don't see myself as removed from that culture i see myself as very much in the culture and i very much know what things are being spoken of case in point i go to the shade room on instagram to me you know um, that to me, the, the shade room is the culture. And I have seen even the shade room go to a very far left political stance. Like they're promoting Joe Biden. You know, they're they're promoting the stimmies. Um, Could I just ask a know, question for the audience real quick? What's the shade room? 
Oh, the shade room is the 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 best uh, feed on Instagram. It's basically a black pop culture. Um, it's a black pop culture Instagram feed. Like that's the shade room. That that's it. I don't, I'm not getting. This is not a hashtag ad, but that is the culture. Right, but I'm right, clear. I'm not saying you're outside of the culture because I think there's a habit of saying a black conservative somehow not black, right? Or they're they're not in the culture. I'm saying no, you're in it. I'm not saying you're out, you're too far away from the culture to appreciate it. I'm saying you have an outsider lens in terms of being outside of our political uh, framework. In other words, from from I think if you're a, a black conservative, it's easy to I think the thing that stands out to you is the the narratives that you disagree with. But I'm saying even in the examples you just gave, yeah. if, you, if you go to the shade room, if you go to Bossa, if you go to YBF, if you go to Baller Alert, there's some black victimhood and there's some conversations about BLM and, and black people being shot. Yeah. But ninety percent of it is like, oh, look at DJ Khaled just went number one. Oh my God, look at look at this, look at Future. Oh my God, look at Diddy on the yacht. Oh my God, it's the Rock Nation brunch. There's a whole lot of other conversations happening. Yeah. About- black people that's not just about dying but i do but the thing about it is is that i do follow all y'all i follow you you don't follow me it's okay it's all good i will but, uh, uh-oh <laughs> no, 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 no. womp womp no unacceptable I, <laughs> I, I i follow i really do like i have an interest in that black liberal conversation so i follow all of y'all and I know exactly what y'all are talking about. And I'm telling you, it's the same shit y'all been talking about for the past 10 years. So I, I think that where I'm at right now is it's time to elevate the conversation. To what though? What is an elevated conversation about race? An elevated, so, so an elevated conversation is not necessarily, I don't think that race is the focal point. So in my mind, when I have an elevated conversation, a lot of my platform is all about no matter what you're, I, I have a lot of immutable characteristics. I'm a black gay guy that is working class, single parent household, like all of that stuff. So my platform and my, all of my success is predicated on the idea that no matter what these immutable characteristics are, you can succeed because we are in America. And this is the place that is more suited for any success, whether it be African-American, gay, Latino, Asian, or otherwise than anywhere else on the planet. And so that is a part of the conversation. And I feel like that there is a very interesting part of that conversation that needs to happen that is not happening among the black left liberal elite, because this conversation about race and racism and you're so oppressed and you're such a victim and all that stuff, that serves the purposes of the white liberals that control that conversation and that also control the Democratic Party. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And so that's my argument. And we there's a certain point, Mark, where we're going to have to elevate this conversation a little bit. And people like you and I are going to have to have real conversations that are not about me trying to destroy you for my audience or you're trying to destroy me. For well, by the way, that, that's actually the purpose of this whole show, which is like what we do. I mean, I'm not, not to like make this a plug in the show, but Mark and I just like, OK, let's just talk about this like. Like two friends who don't agree on anything would talk about things if they were talking where it's not all, oh, sick burn, you know, shut your face. That's right. You know, and then you look at all the Twitter comments. Yeah, school them. Like, we're like, this is unfortunately what social media has devolved all left, right political conversation to in the general ecosystem out there, which is just completely it's completely unhelpful. I mean, it it doesn't. By the way. 
it's right. And, and I'm fully willing to have those conversations. And sometimes when I go into the lines, then to have those conversations, like I look dumb, like that's an occupational hazard. I would have done, I would have done your show. Oh, I mean, I'll I tell you also, Mark, what, what Mark, I, Mark invited me to do a show. I would have done it. It just literally, the timing was bad. Yeah, no, but I mean, I was just saying that I want Mark to respond to, you know, what, what, uh, what you just said a second ago, Rob, just in general about, about how you're seeing things. But, you know, I, I would just say that for, even for me to hear from somebody who is a person uh, like Mark, who is who is on the left of American politics and just be able to get past that that notion of, you know, you're you're a, a you know, right wing white male outsider who and, and to get past. And this is true of any leftist, by the way, I don't I'm not saying that it's that specific to Mark, but to be able to actually have a conversation where I get to say, OK, no, tell me like we call the show. What do you really think? Because that's really the, the basic premise is. No, I want to know what you, I want to know why you believe these things like Mark goes on. I'm, I'm going to talk about defund the police in a second. But Mark goes on about defund the police. At least I'm getting the best version of you know the most thoughtful, insightful version of why people say defund the police, because what usually happens in the media ecosystem, as I say, defund sounds like a really bad idea to me. And all of a sudden, my Twitter is just like, shut up, racist. <laughs> like, OK, well, this is this isn't helpful. But anyway, Mark, I wanted to let you respond oh. to what Rob said about. Uh, his view of, of the conversation overall. Will there ever be a real conversation about race and can me, a black conservative, and Mark, a black liberal, started? The last part of this amazing conversation is right after the break. I'm here for the elevated conversation. That, that's what I live for. Um, and, 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 and like Buck said, I mean, that, that's what we do here uh, probably better than anybody. Uh, and I say that with no hubris, just I think we're really trying to raise the level of conversation and have more nuanced and thoughtful conversation about uh, not just race, but but what politics in America looks like. I, I've spent the last week, um, and I spent most of my time fighting with the left. My last book on Palestine was about or arguing with the left. Like, yo, y'all need to, do, you're, you're frauds, you know? So for me, um, I don't have any kind of dogmatic attachment to the Democratic Party. I'm a Green Party member. I've never been a Democrat. Um, for me, it's about what what's good politics, what's good outcomes, and what's true. When it comes to race in particular, um, I'm fine having the conversation about what the next steps look like, about what um, what's good, what's working, and not about having just a purely doomsday narrative. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I do come out of a tradition, and I do come out of a, a, a politics that sees America as a white supremacist nation, that sees America as born out of white supremacy, and sees racism as the most endurable, I'm sorry, the most durable and intractable problem. That's the whole critical race theory. And so for me, um, what is getting past that look like, Mark? I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think that no, no, I, I think you're right. So that's, that's just where I was going. So for me, it's not either or, but it's both. And it means that we don't lose sight of the thing that that you that that, that Rob was just saying is a problem to hold on to. I think we have to hold on to that, but we don't have to linger there. We can hold on to that and also have other conversations. And, and those conversations have to be honest and transparent. For I don't ex- know if you can hold on to it without lingering, which is the issue that I'm having. And I and, and I know that, you know, this is the, the vogue right now on the left is to say that America is fundamentally racist and white supremacist. I just did an episode of my podcast last week and I said uh, the title was literally no, America is not a racist country. And my thesis on this, and my entire theory is that if America was fundamentally empirically racist and the racism that is ingrained in America's DNA could never be repaired, then we would not have gotten to the place that we are in right now in terms of race relations in America. 
that means that we would not have gotten over Jim Crow, which means we would not have gotten over segregation. We have not have gotten over slavery. We would not have real conversations that are bipartisan at this point. So mass incarceration and the problem of the criminal justice system has become a not a, a bipartisan conversation. Um, and it is so bipartisan, in fact, that the most comprehensive criminal justice reform that was passed in a generation was passed under a Republican president that was Donald Trump. The Trump administration, right? So we've gotten to the place where all of these conversations have become bipartisan. I believe that if America was fundamentally racist, was fundamentally white supremacist, was fundamentally all of these things, we would never have moved past all of these moments. So that's why I'm of the belief that America has issues with race and racism. Absolutely. The sky is blue. I've been a black man in America for over 30 plus years. All right. But we have gotten to a point where we are actively moving past this and trying to move beyond it. And everybody is doing the work to move beyond it. And if we were fundamentally racist, then we would not have even gotten to this point. Yeah. I mean, if I accept, again, if I accepted the premise, right, which is that the measure of not being fundamentally racist is that we can have uh, race relations, positive race relations, and that we can have bipartisan agreement on uh, signposts of racial progress, then yeah, we're, we're not fundamentally racist. I'd agree with you. I don't accept that premise, right? For me, um, first of all, the question of being fundamentally racist and being immutably racist are two different things, right? I think it would be hard to argue that a nation founded on on the dispossession and the erasure of, of native populations, of settler colonialism, a nation whose economy is built on the, ensla- on the enslavement of African people is not fundamentally racist. I, 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 I would say that that's almost... Uh, unimaginable as an argument. Now, if you argue that it can't, ch- now if you argue it can change from that, I think that's a different conversation. So, so that's why I say fundamentally racist at the core. Yes, America was built on the premise of freedom for white men. America was founded on the premise um, that that African people weren't people, um, and 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 it took hundreds of years to get us to a place where African enslaved Africans were even considered citizens legally. And then it took another hundred years to get them to a place where they were full citizens in terms of the law or maybe not full hundred, but, you know, we, it, just about. So. Um, so I so I think the fundamentally racist thing is, is different. Now, if you ask, is America uh, immutably racist? That is to say, can America be is uh, uh, can America be anything other than racist? I think then we can have an interesting conversation um, for me. I'd like to believe that America, that American racism is, 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 a, is a fixable problem, that we can get to a place where America is no longer racist to white supremacists. I'd love that. Um, I'd love that. Um, I don't believe we're there. Um, and I don't think that there's any particular value in pretending that we're there now or believing that we're there now. I'm not saying pretending. I don't imply dishonesty. I'm simply mm-hmm. saying that where we are now as a nation, we have so many enduring problems at the systemic level that are play out along racial lines. And I think we still have to look at systemic racism for me. And this is where we differ. And I want to hear your response to this. Uh, for me, where we differ, I think partly is that I'm not necessarily assigning that to at the level of intention. I think that you can have people who want to get beyond racism. You can have people who don't see themselves as white supremacists. You can have people who don't even believe that they're better than another race, right? Who still by virtue of the circumstance we're in 
are active players, not just white people, but me too, black people too, are active players in a system that perpetuates racial inequality. And so, yes, the yes, we're having great racial relations. Yes, we're way better than we were 10 years ago and 50 years ago and 100 years ago. But that doesn't mean that the system doesn't dole out different outcomes along racial lines. And if it does, then it's a, then it's still a, 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 there's still systemic racism. Now, how we get past it, that's the conversation to have to me. So there's a couple of questions. The question that I have is, is number one. So if, if different outcomes are coming from different people, at what point does personal responsibility come into play? So if two people are having two different outcomes, does that have anything to do with what they are doing in the world or is everything racism when, when these two people are, are black and white? And second of all, it, what I really wonder, you know, when I'm talking to somebody like you or, or a lot of other, you know, black intellectuals on the left, does it do any favors for the average black American that does not make their living speaking about race or writing about race or, or all of that stuff? So for the average black American that is just trying to work, let's say electrician, plumber, et cetera, does it do the average black American any favors to view their life and the way that they see the world and their possibility of career, personal, financial success? through the lens of racism and race all the time? My answer to that question will be absolutely not. Um, and, and I think about one thing that was happening last summer. I just want to tell you this one story and then I'll let you get in. Um, there was a Black Lives Matter um, march that, where I lived in, in Florida. And I'll never forget this. There, Where I lived, there was a pier that just opened. And so the Black Lives Matter people came down the pier and they were doing all this stuff and they were very, very angry. And I kind of like kept away from it. You know, I, I kept my distance. I watched it. But what I will never forget is this young black woman that was in so much pain that she just collapsed into tears um, on the side of a tree. And I really looked at her. And I really felt her pain in this moment. And the only question that I had was. Is this, is it doing her any favors to be in this much pain in this moment? And how is this helping her n navigate her life? And I think about, and that's the question that I have. And I think about that question literally times like 10 million. Can I ask just uh, before Mark uh, responds to this? So is it fair to say, Rob, that what you're saying is that sometimes the, the BLM narrative, if taken to heart for some members of the black community, almost creates a, a, uh, uh, the, the collapse you're talking about and, and emotional and psychological paralysis that while, by trying to bring attention to an issue, I would argue by greatly exaggerating how prevalent an issue actually is. We're talking about people being killed by police officers. Um, you can actually do a lot of harm to the people you think you are helping by raising the is, is that a fair? That's that's absolutely what I'm okay. saying. It's, All right, Mark, go, Mark, go, want to hear your thoughts? Yeah, um, I'll get to the BLM narrative part at the end because I think that's important um, and, and somewhat unfair. Uh, and only something that only happens to black people or, or, or almost exclusively happens to black people. Um, there's never been a movement for racial equality in America that hasn't taken into account individual responsibility. If you look at, for example, and we can look at the United Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, Marcus. We can look at perhaps the biggest and most impactful one culturally and politically 
and in terms of the leadership that it produced, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, etc., uh, that'd be the nation of Farrakhan, you know, that'd be the nation of Islam. The nation of Islam believed that white people were the devil, right? That they were ontologically evil. The nation of Islam taught that the system was evil. Um, they still told black men to straighten up, to stop drinking, to stop smoking, to not harm their wives, to not engage in domestic violence to be specific, to not engage in sexual violence, to read books, to educate themselves, to not drink, smoke, etc. right? There's always been a relationship between the structural analysis and the, and the, and the individual responsibility piece. In many ways, Nation of Islam, or Farrakhan is actually, he's a black conservative, right? On almost every issue, right? There's almost no issue that you consider him on the left. Well, certainly with homosexuality. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's the economy, whether it's uh, whether it's rape culture, I mean, I mean, quite frankly, if 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 I drew a white face on on Minister Farrakhan's body, um, you wouldn't be shocked. You'd be like, oh, that's just one of those evangelicals, right? He just, you know, so so I say that to say that there's never been this narrative. There's never been a single narrative of just fix the system, fix the system, the system is your problem. I went to Cook County Jail with Jesse Jackson one time, and I don't think anybody on this podcast would accuse Jesse Jackson of not talking about race or, 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 or blaming systemic racism for things. We were at Cook County Jail, and we were there on Christmas, and we asked a bunch of men, how many of you are here for a nonviolent drug offense? Hands go up. There's a war on drugs, systemic issue. Uh, how many of you are here finish high school? Uh, almost no hands go up. Pushing kids out of school, systemic issue. How many of you um, have kids? Hands go up, two kids, hands go up, three hands. We stopped asking, right? He said, how many of you want to shut this prison down right now? Hands go up, everybody. They said, yeah, what do we do? He said, don't come back no more. His, Jesse Jackson had as a structural analysis, but in that moment, he understood that the message that he needed to communicate to those people was not that there isn't a conspiracy, not that there isn't a structural problem, not that there isn't systemic racism, but that you have individual choices about whether or not you are going to support said conspiracy, whether you're going to compound the racism with your own action, right? You got to act right. You need some act right at the same time that you need some systemic critique. That's always been our narrative. Mm -hmm. now, Lastly, to, to Buck's point about BLM, BLM is a movement to stop the state from killing us. We could always make better choices. Everybody can make better choices, right? But if I would not go to the, for example, the ADL and talk about individual choices, if we're talking about a systemic problem of anti-Semitism, because anti-Semitism is real and needs to be addressed, right? I, if I were talking about, if I were doing a, a, a cancer awareness uh, uh, campaign and I wanted to talk about the systemic issues attached to, to, to cancer research or the need for more cancer research or the need for more HIV AIDS research in the 80s, yeah, I could talk about healthy choices. I could say, let's use HIV AIDS. I could talk about people wearing condoms. I could talk about people making healthier choices. I could talk about people communicate. All that's important. But if the organization is designed to combat stigma, then I wouldn't blame the organization for not telling more people not to wear, more people to, to engage in better sexual practices. And, and yet somehow, when an organization is designed to say, hey, state, stop killing us, 
we say, well, why? They're, they're only talking about being victims. Well, it's it, it's it's a movement about people who are victims of state violence. Well, I was really talking about uh, BLM in, in terms of victimization because I don't want to, we don't have enough time to have the BLM well, I was conversation. Talking in particular. No, no, I, 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 yeah, I, that, that was on. That was actually on me. And I would just say, I mean, this is you brought up diseases. I mean, if you if you look at, you know, if you were raising millions and millions of dollars for uh, for the treatment, just just to take the disease analogy for a second. And, and you're, you're diverting all these resources to the hantavirus. The hantavirus kills people every year in America. It kills about five people every year in America. Other diseases kill many, many thousands and thousands of people. Put aside COVID for a second, obviously, with 600,000. But, you know, there are all kinds of different ailments people get, rare cancers people get. And if there were constant marches and rallies within the medical community saying we need to defeat this hantavirus scourge, people would say, OK, but. You know, well, what about what about the actual much bigger problems that are still within this? And when you're in a country where right now you have the worst violence numbers that you've had in over 20 years of homicides, nationwide murders, disproportionately black victims of these crimes, young black and brown men in particular being killed to spend all this time marching in the community and out there because of. There were 14 unarmed black people, I believe, killed by police in 2019. I don't think we have the 2020 numbers yet. Some, it feels like, Mark, something's up there. I mean, that's just... And just- also, and I have to I have to hop in and say, and I, I, I know you guys probably have to wrap this up soon, we don't have to, we don't have the time to do BLM, but BLM is predicated on a lot of false idols. There's a lot of false idols. Um, that are that are being martyred in the BLM movement, but we don't have to. We'll we'll go into we'll do that in the sequel. We'll that, that, that's that's fair. Um, so I mean, it's fair to do it in the sequel. Not I don't agree with your your argument about the idols. Um, but um, but I, I I think that that's an interesting point. And if the BLM movement were purely about responding to the number of people wrongfully killed by police, then yeah, you could say we're devoting we're majoring in the minors. My grandma would say, as my mom would say, right? But the BLM movement isn't about that. It's about the violence that's done in black communities by the state. And that violence isn't just about shooting us. That violence isn't just about killing us. It's also about the, the militarization of our of our communities. It's also mm-hmm. about the deprivation of resources. All of this is about the call for Black Lives Matter. You're right. Black Lives Matter originally emerged out of um, because of Trayvon Martin and it become it hits its stride after Michael Brown is killed. But the movement has never been about a single issue. It's never been just about state violence by or police involved shootings. It's been about all of these facts. I mean, I'll just tell you, man, having having been as as a I don't consider myself a journalist, but as a media person, having been to a lot of BLM rallies here in New York to take photos and video, it is all about racist cops killing black people. That's all you hear about. There's but, there's nothing else that what you're talking about is is interesting and worthy. And I, I don't try to undermine that. There's all these other aspects of the culture. But I'm just telling you. I mean, I could I could start throwing the photos up on the screen. It's all, you know, racist murdering cops need to stop. Why do you you know why? Because from 2014 until 2021 on this day, there have been in every city hundreds of meetings, hundreds of rallies, hundreds of organizing actions. The corporate media only pays attention when a black person is killed. And then they only go to the big protest, hoping to catch a rally. I mean, a riot, hoping to catch violence. So I'll give you an example. Last summer, or the summer of 2019, the year before uh, 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 Derek Floyd. George Floyd, right, the BLM Philly had organizing meetings every week. We protested the school, the prison pipeline. 
We protested school expulsions and suspensions where black people are overrepresented, even for the committing the same offenses as their white counterparts. We talked about food insecurity. We talked about um, transnational solidarity with Palestine. There was a range of issues. You know how many media camp, you know how many media uh, showed up? None. So it, it's, it's, it's simply not fair to say that the BLM preoccupation is X. That's actually the corporate media's preoccupation with BLM. But that's about setting the narrative, and the narrative has set by the people with the loudest voices on the left to tell, to tell the corporate media as to what is worthy of being covered and what is not worthy I, of being I, covered. I, I disagree. I think I think a bunch of black kids getting suspended in Cleveland or Philadelphia or Detroit just doesn't make national news. A black person getting killed unarmed does. Whether regardless of the whether, regardless and, of, and all the in in just on the same token, all the black violence that happens in Chicago every weekend doesn't really get covered either. Um, nowhere but Fox News, by the way. And then people say that Fox News is sort of trying to advance some narrative by shining light to this stuff. So we can and you know, look, uh, attacking the corporate media can be uh, the the third part of a trilogy. Yeah, uh, I, I think the legacy. I think the legacy that. media, in a general sense, is actually the enemy of truth in America and fairness and decency. But that's a whole. That's a whole. That's why we do what we do here. Uh, well, right. We should leave it there, though, because Mark Mark is like on hour 14 of his day already. And I'm, <laughs> I'm on like 12. He's a little ahead of me. So, Rob, Rob, you look so like like fresh and happy and you know like you got sleep like you know you're you're good mark and i look like we're, we're about to pass out and die here i've literally like i've been on planes all day i just like i was i was animated to do this and also the lighting is really really good like i got my there i we, got my lighting so well man we really we really appreciate you joining us this week i mean mark is mark is lucky we're about to go into the uh the defund police narrative thing but he's we'll, we'll save that for another time maybe you can come back and hang out with us and talk some more tell everybody again where they can check out your podcast rob yeah guys uh if you are just now getting introduced to me my name is rob smith you can find me on twitter facebook and instagram at rob smith online my podcast is called rob smith is problematic so if you loved or hated anything i had to say you're gonna love this podcast because this is what i get into every single week so rob smith is problematic you can find on apple podcasts iheart podcasts or wherever you get yeah, your and I'm gonna, I'm gonna just and say, I just followed you on Twitter. There we oh, go. There we go. And I was going to say, Mark, Mark should have you on his show at some point because I, as as in, in some stretches here, a, a happy bystander, uh, I actually really in, in, enjoy the back and forth between the two of you. So you have two smart guys who can speak from within, within the community in a variety of contexts and and do so in a way that's both illuminating and, and worthwhile so so thank you so much for that that was that was cool it was cool to be an observer of my own show look at that that's how it goes it's all fun. right everybody that's gonna be it for us we'll see you next week on what do you really think mark get some sleep everybody else talk to you soon peace Before we go, I want to thank my fellow Problematics so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at RobSmithOnline. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, researcher Aaron Kliegman, and executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, part of the Gingrich 360 Network.